0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Vince Reinhart with us, and it is a timely conversation because so much of what we heard at the World Economic Forum meetings was about core theory. For years, he led the theory study at the Federal Reserve System, and was way out front uh, with a number of other lead economists on driving forward the terms, the words, and the jargon of the Fed. He is, of course, Mellon, chief economist, and he joins us this morning. Vince, uh, one of the words that John and I heard a, a interview after interview was either tool or toolkits as well. What is the toolkit that Chairman Powell has at the press conference this afternoon? What's available?
1: Uh, pretty limited in the sense that uh, I think they still believe that the funds rate is in the right place to keep the economy in a good place. Uh, one thing you'll never hear from a central banker is admitting, admitting defeat. Uh, you can always do a little bit more of what you've done previously, right. uh, including making your balance sheet bigger and <clears throat>
2: changing the composition.
0: John, that's, that's equivalent. They got that from fans of the Boston Red Sox in the 1960s. He so did
2: mention the, the balance sheet, ahead. so let's explore that a little bit further. Vince, let's talk about it. The balance sheet operation of the Fed at the moment, building up some big purchases of T-bills and arguably set mm-hmm. to unwind some of that, or at least stop it, later this year. How do they go about communicating that?
1: Uh, So I think that um, they have a problem in terms of the repo market, uh, and their solution is brute force, i.e. by so so many assets, you've created an ample amount of reserves, and so the the repo rate and other overnight rates won't spike. The problem they have, as you note, is uh, they made their balance sheet bigger again by buying treasury bills and those treasury bills are going to be going away, and you think you'll get some balance sheet shrinkage later in the year. Uh, They don't have to. They are in complete control of the balance sheet. They can buy longer-term treasury securities, or they can arrange a rolling book of temporary transactions to make sure they keep reserves ample. Uh, They don't have a permanent fix yet, uh, but uh, they're going to do it the old-fashioned way, which is just keep adding, adding, adding reserves.
3: Vince, there's sort of a key question for markets about the Fed and the potential for them to start tapering off some of their T-bill purchases. Just how much of an effect has their uh, balance sheet expansion that we've seen over the past six to eight months had on risk assets? And Bill Dudley, former New York Fed yeah. president, who's going to be coming on the show uh, later on with, with with John and Tom, writing in a, in a Bloomberg opinion piece, I am skeptical that the Fed's balance sheet expansion is having a major effect on U.S. stock prices. Do you agree?
1: I was going to say, go to your Bloomberg terminal and read the article by Bill Bill Dudley. Uh, I, I I I agree. I think that uh, mostly the. Uh Asset prices are driven by the interest rates the Federal Reserve sets, i.e. the overnight rate and its configuration of borrowing uh, deposit rate and and such. And the composition of the balance sheet, the size of the balance sheet, uh, has at most a second or third order effect. Uh, So I think Fed officials just won't go there. And you will not hear uh, J-PAL this afternoon uh, take any responsibility for uh, asset value associated with the size of the balance sheet, where he has to take responsibility uh, in terms of asset values is the lowness of, of the overnight rate.
2: The problem at the moment, though, Vince, and I think you'll appreciate this, and it is a clearly well laid out argument from the former New York Fed president this morning. He goes through the impact, the effect on interest rates, the effect on liquidity, but the signaling, if enough people think that is what it matters for financial assets, isn't that a problem that they've got to own? Uh,
1: yes, and we had that, it, the Fed had that problem a year ago, December, when everybody was talking about quantitative tightening associated with the run runoff of uh, the balance sheet. There are such things as self-fulfilling uh, uh, prophecies that if enough people in the market convince themselves it's so, uh, y- uh, then it may wind up so, and what it's up right. to Chair Powell and his colleagues to push back on that mistake.
0: Do, do you have in your research history at the Fed, Vince Reinhardt, I think of uh, Dr. Orphanides and many others writing with you and for you, any essays that say a central bank can reflate other than massive issuance of money? I mean, is reflation a valid monetary concept?
1: Uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary no, phenomenon. No, but I mean reflation. I Excuse
0: from, yeah. re- reflation. Just yeah. the, the physical ability to reflate an economy, is it doable?
1: Uh, I would ask uh, Governor Kuroda about that because he's having an enormously difficult
0: time. Yeah, thank you. Even though
1: he's throwing, about, throwing every monetary policy tool at, at the problem. I think there's two – this is what you have to remember, Tom. A central bank does not create extra demand. It borrows it. It either borrows it from its trading partner by depreciating its currency, or it borrows it from the future by keeping short rates lower than the equilibrium one. And what's the problem post-financial crisis? The equilibrium rate is really low, so the Fed can't have much of a sale on interest rates. It can't get the actual rate that much below the equilibrium, and nobody nobody wants to accept appreciation of their currency vis-a-vis the dollar so j-pal can't get the dollar down
0: that will be on our podcast this afternoon folks and for those of you in young academics and economics professor reinhardt just nailed it there well, and, on the demand illusion involved.
3: And he has the experience to back it up. With 24 years at the Federal Reserve, uh, particularly as the uh, Division of Monetary Affairs and uh, Secretary of uh, the Economist in the Federal Open Market Committee, I'm curious, given your experience at the Fed, what you think of the increasing focus on some sort of coordination between politicians and monetary policymakers. How concerning is that to you as sort of the possible next step in an effort to reflate the economy.
1: So I think that if you erode the independence of the central bank, uh, then you you do longer ter- term damage to your ability to uh, stabilize the economy. I think the problem is not about the Federal Reserve, it's that fiscal policy is done so poorly. Uh, Congress can't act. Um, We don't have automatic, uh, sufficient automatic stabilizers. The biggest lie in Washington D.C. or among the biggest lies, let me me be clear, is that there are always shovel-ready projects uh, if you want to do discretionary spending. We just don't do it right, and because fiscal policy is done so poorly, we rely on monetary policy more than we have to. So I'd get fiscal policy. better coordinated, and then leave monetary policy to do the gap.
0: Vince, one final question. What are you going to listen for today? I I mean, you know, Michael McKee's going to be there. They're going to ask a lot of questions. Everybody's telling me it's a snooze fest. I don't buy it. A press conference is never a snooze fest, is it?
1: Uh, If I were Jay Powell, I wouldn't call on on Mike McKee because he'll ask a hard
0: question. He does. Um, Usually brings a place to silence. It's embarrassing so i
1: think there are, are two things uh, uh the, the one is is how j Powell walks the fine line as reporters ask questions about uh late breaking events what is the coronavirus yeah, what, yeah, sure, how does sure. it mean you have to be empathetic but you also don't want to overstate what it means for the u.s economy so that 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 will be a, a test of his diplomatic skills what, what i listen for is uh how asymmetric the guardrails around the current funds rate I think they'd yeah. be much more willing to ease than they would be tighten, to tighten. Uh, we got that in December, and here's his chance to explain that again.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Vince Reiner. Thank Thanks, you Vince. So much. Just brilliant there in the middle, talking about demand dynamics, the IS curve, the real economy, folding into I, what I love, the Fed wishes. I, I love that
2: phrase, though, how flexible the guardrails are around the Fed funds rate right now, how asymmetric they are, which basically goes to something really, really, to make it really simple. The Fed has basically told pretty much everyone in the last couple of months that if things get better, they won't get in the way, they won't hike, but if things get worse, they'll be ready to cut again. And I think that shift in the reaction function of the last 12 months, emphasised in the last couple of months, is really, really important.
0: interview of the day, synthesizing again economics with finance and investment. And I wish you could have been with us folks on the commercial bank as we talked to the former president of the uh, New York uh, Central Bank, and of course, William Dudley associated for years with defining Goldman Sachs uh, economics. Uh, and here with an essay out, but Bill, I have to digress first. You're down at Princeton making me feel like a fossil, <laughs> which is you're teaching, and as you brilliantly said, these kids in these master programs don't really remember the financial crisis
4: well they remember it as ch- kids right and kids. so it, obviously it had effects on their parents and yep. their parents jobs and livelihoods but Probably not on them directly.
0: What questions do they ask? These are esteemed kids in the, at the Griswold Center at Princeton University. These are the best and brightest. What questions do they ask about the agony we all lived?
4: Well, I think they're particularly interested in, okay, in the fog of war when everything is starting to break, what do you do and why do you do it? And what do you know and what don't you know? And how do you make decisions under uncertainty?
0: Do you go back to foundational economic theory? I mean, are you quoting these bright kids, ISL, you know, Hicksy and ISL? Uh, it's, it's not. It's not so much. You know,
4: a, it's not deep in economic theory. It's more about how the financial system fits, fits together all the pieces. So
0: you talk about the roulette wheel you had at the Eccles Building as <laughs> you <just> spin <laughs> the, the, the ball. The, the
4: growth of the investment banking business, the secu- you know, the growth of complex securitized products, you know, the bad uh, subprime mortgage underwriting, you know, all those things that fit together that causes the financial crisis. Yeah. So,
5: Bill, we were just talking in the break. We're still feeling the impacts of the financial crisis, aren't we? What are some of the ways that you think are still, whether it's Fed policy, politics, you know, what's your take on that?
4: Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, impacts. Number one, the Fed has a different monetary policy framework today than it did prior to the financial crisis. More Uh, aggressive? Well, it's got a big balance sheet. And, uh, you know, it sets interest rates by setting the interest rate it pays on reserves. A totally different regime. We have a different regulatory and supervisory regime. We have the, you know, Financial Stability Oversight Council. We have all the things that the Dodd-Frank Act did. Um, And we have a very different political environment, too, I think.
0: You have an important essay out today. It was an essay. If it had been released in Happy Valley called Davos, you would have been thrown in a snowbank. Uh, (laughs) Dudley against the consensus. There are much better explanations for the recent rise in stocks than Fed T-bill purchases. Nobody in Happy Valley agrees with that statement. Discuss now why conventional monetary accommodation is really why we've seen the lift versus balance sheet dynamics.
4: Well, people have basically made this claim that because the Fed is buying 60 billion of treasury bills a month, that that's why the stock market's gone up We heard this in every interview. And I I just find that uh, not compelling at all because there's a much better explanation. The better explanation is the Fed eased interest rates 75 basis points last year. Second, it said that monetary policy is on hold until we get inflation well above 2%. And, so, and, the, and the economy looks fine. So you have a situation okay. where the Fed is friendly, the economy is fine. And of course, that's how, why equities are going up.
0: And you learned this at Berkeley many years ago. I mean, I grew up in the aerospace game, which the x-axis matters. Everybody's focused on the y-axis. And to me, in the last 90, 100 days, the dialogue has been to shift the x-axis out longer. And even the belief in going out the x-axis in time has led to accommodation. You know, they're not going to move for a while.
4: Well, they've they've they basically changed their regime. Before, it was like we need to get to neutral at about the same time that the economy gets to full employment. Yeah, exactly. Now, now they have a different regime, which is we're basically going to stay here until we actually <laughs> see inflation.
0: Oh, my word, Dudley, channeling James Bullard. It's Bullard, it's a surveillance
5: exclusive. So, Bill, so the, this, the, you know, the $60 billion of T-bill buying, is that just, you think that's, Kind of the new normal,
4: or just is, this, is no, that kind of refle- no.
5: Is it reflecting the growth of the economy? What do you think is going on there? They're just
4: trying to catch up and get enough bank reserves in the system. They basically found out in September last year there weren't enough reserves in the banking system, and that's what caused that spike in repo rates. And the solution to solving that spike in repo rates is to add more reserves to the banking system. Is this system.
5: the permanent solution we've been uh,
4: waiting for? Well, I think this will take care of the problem of big spikes in repo rates. And then the next question is, are they going to go a little bit further? and introduce a standing repo facility to put a cap on rates. You know, So if, the, if upper pressure develops, you go to the Fed's standing repo facility, and there's no upper pressure on repo rates. I think that's coming, but they have not made a decision on so that. So did the yet. New
5: York Fed get caught flat-footed? Did they miss something? Was it a mistake? Was it, well, I happen- think what
4: happened was nobody knew what the underlying demand for bank reserves were was because we changed the regulatory regime pretty significantly. And we found out in September that the demand for reserves was a bit higher than what people uh, anticipated. Uh, it was higher than what banks told the Fed their demand for reserves was because banks actually had a buffer above the level that they had told the Fed. So a bank might say, look, we, we, we don't want to have reserves fall below $100 billion. Uh, that's what they tell the Fed. But in fact, they want to hold $120 billion, $130 billion of reserves because they want to make sure that they stay above $100 billion. And so if every, every bank in the system does that, the demand for reserves is bigger than what people uh, anticipated.
5: Anything. Any action this afternoon? FOMC at two o'clock, or is this oh, going to be? Can't say it anything. Could
4: be, it could be the most boring meeting <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in a very long time. But we will cover Wait,
5: it is
0: in it, detail. Is it, it going to be a snooze fest? I mean, to uh, me, a snooze fest is in, where there's a lack of. I mean, obviously,
4: you know, it depends on what the chair, Chair Powell, says in the press conference. If he, if he talks about, uh, you know, what some of the. Uh, programs that are likely to be undertaken to address the repo market right. over the long term. Like if he talks about a standing repo facility, that'll be newsworthy. Okay. But in terms of actual monetary policy, right. they're not going to change rates. And they're and he's going to basically tell people, again, we're not changing Great. rates for quite a while.
0: I got to ask you the question that it was rampant at Davos. Certain parties suggest the business cycle has been removed. The boom-bust cycle's gone because as we've dampened down to the zero bound, this time is different. There'll be a leaden feel, a less volatile feel to the cyclical economy. Do you buy that idea?
4: I buy it to a degree. I mean, I do think there are reasons why the economy is less cyclical. It's a more open economy. Uh, we have a bigger service sector relative to a smaller goods sector. Uh, businesses have better information about what's happening to their demand into inventories. But the idea that the business cycle has been repealed... Boy, talking coming back to the financial crisis, remember all the things that we heard <laughs> prior to the financial crisis yeah, that could never happen? It was your fault. I, I, would <laughs> yeah. not, I would not want to subscribe to the idea that the business cycle is dead.
0: Well, William Dudley, thank you so much. A former president of the Federal Reserve System teaching an interesting master's level class at Princeton right now, out with an important Bloomberg Opinion article. We'll do much more with this interview uh, today. Joining us, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisers, serving President Obama, Austin Goolsbee of Chicago, joins us as well. Austin, I, I want to dovetail off the controversy that Bill Dudley addressed and get your opinion and to get shades of it. He alluded in a Bellardian fashion, the St. Louis Fed president that yes, there's been a regime change at this Federal Reserve. I was talking about the solution is to go out the x-axis and stretch things out, hoping that will relieve tensions in the system in an attempt to reflate the American economy. Do you have a sense that there's been a regime change at our central bank
6: You know, I'm a big fan of Bill Dudley's, and I was on the economic advisory panel uh, when he was for the New York Fed when he was the head of the New York Fed. I think there has been a regime change, and then I think there's been another regime change, which is we went for so many years that the Fed would say, we predict the economy is going to be growing like crazy. The actual data would come in not that great. So they predict they were going to be able to raise rates a bunch of times, and then they wouldn't raise. And they just went through that cycle year after year. Yeah. And we felt like we understood the Fed's reaction function, even though it was kind of, as I say, a sort of a credible non-credibility or something. Um, and then we went through this period where the Fed just started raising rates, even though the conditions had not, had not changed. And I think that was a period of confusion, uh, and then as things started to soften, I think the Fed has switched back to a regime where right. the, where they're nervous, and I, I think it's a it's an appropriate critique. Maybe it is a critique. It's appropriate to say, "Look, guys, you got to just tell us what is the Fed's reaction function? What's happening mm-hmm. here? Because that does matter." Um, but you know i i don't think it's crazy despite the unemployment rate right. being low there are also parts of the economy that are quite weak gdp growth right. is weak business investment quite weak manufacturing maybe already in recession so i don't think it's i don't think right. it's wrong to be in regime
0: change. The core of the current Dudley theme, and this is very different than everybody assembled at Davos. I wish you'd been there, Austin, at least to get the party going at night. But <laughs> but Professor Goolsby, the theme there is QE, QE, the banks, it's all their fault with QE. And Dudley aggressively pushes against that, suggesting blunt traditional accommodation and a few other matters is actually what is sustain this economy. Do you buy the Dudley thesis, or it is that this is just QE6 or whatever it is?
6: Well, I I guess I mostly buy the Dudley thesis that, that rates are the big driver. And I guess I base that partly on the evidence of what QE actually did is modest. We had a huge QE, and on the mortgage rate side, you see some traction. On the Treasury side, mostly pretty modest traction. And if you go look at Japan, or if you look at at circumstances where the QE was even bigger, it's it's modestly effective. And so we don't have a great idea as as you if you roll off QE or you roll onto QE, does that really where the rubber hits the road, make as big a difference as 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 actually cutting rates does.
5: So, Austin, are you of the opinion that this Federal Reserve is more than likely to stay on the sidelines for the foreseeable future here? We'll certainly mm-hmm. hear from them this afternoon, but is that kind of your expectation for 2020?
6: In the immediate term, yes. Um, I've actually been a little nervous, even before the possibilities of of coronavirus freaking people out i think that it, it ought to be a more of a yellow light to see these cyclically sensitive sectors of the economy like manufacturing doing as poorly as they are that ought to put a warning light on people's radar screen not to have a horrible mixed metaphor there but um i think the fed should be a little, I think the Fed is in the mindset that they're they're looking for problems, and that might mean that the Fed, rather than sitting on the sidelines, if things got worse, I think the Fed would get more accommodative and might even cut rates.
5: So, Austin, I think you know certainly the markets appear to be saying, as it relates to the economy, yes, we know manufacturing is in a recession, business investment is weaker than uh, the most would like but the consumer is still there, still powering this economy. Do you think that's how how the Fed kind of looks at it?
6: I think so. And I don't don't think that's wrong. You know, it's kind of a tale of two economies. The consumer looks great. The job market, very strong. We still can't understand why wages aren't growing faster if the unemployment rate is like this. But anything on that consumer and job side looks quite robust. It's just the overall growth isn't high productivity growth rate isn't high manufacturing and and for sure anything that has to do with trade has been kind of in the dumps so i do think the fed is mostly in this wait and see because that's sort of confusing it's not normal uh that that you would look out at the economy and normally most stuff is going the same way so if we're in a boom then Everything's moving. If we're in a recession, then almost everything is is going down, and we're we're in this kind of split scenario.
0: We're thrilled to bring to you back to back today, Bill Dudley, uh, the former president of the New York Fed and the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, with us now from Booth School, Chicago, Austin uh, Goolsbee. Austin Goolsbee has to slog through the microeconomists in Chicago <laughs> and uh, try to understand what they're doing. One of them is Amir Sufi. who's done just great great work in the credit markets. He did a panel at Princeton, uh, Austin, a couple years ago on boom bust and he took it from a more financial side like a Krosner side one of the big debates at Davos Austin was a certain school of thought that boom bust is over cyclicals over because we're at the lower bound and the idea that we get a more leaden response, the elasticity, the malleability of the economy goes out because we're at the zero bound. Do you buy into that? We got huge pushback from Carmen Reinhart and frankly, William Dudley on the idea that, you know, I'm sorry, the boom-bust cycle's still out there. Is it?
6: Uh, look, I think it is. I uh, Amr Sufi is one of my best friends. His office is, is off, so two doors down from mine. Uh, He's, he's done amazing work, really path-breaking work, about the importance of debt in the economy and the ways that it can, can burden you mm, right. and any recovery from recession. Uh, that said, I don't think he feels as strongly ab- on this question of, is the boom-bust cycle over? I, th- I think Sufi for sure believes there's still booms and busts. I have always said whenever you start yeah. seeing people say the boom bust cycle is over and in the great moderation and they we we don't have to worry right. about recessions anymore that's a time to go put the money under the mattress because <laughs> okay. then the, the cycle will be back mm. and I I really you know yes this is the longest expansion we have on record mm. uh, the, to conclude from that that the The business cycle is over. Right. I think it's okay. a little dangerous. Well, I let's think it's fold a this in.
0: We're dangerous. going, to, uh, Paul Sweeney. We're going all boost School here, just to keep Austin happy. It won't come back. It's still or,
5: GSP to unless me. we
0: do that. <laughs> Phil Schwagel, and this isn't even in the news flow. Austin, with all the serious stuff out there, like the virus, Schwagel's now holding court at the Congressional Budget Office again. Another victim of the Booth School, Chicago, <laughs> and taught there for years. I mean, <laughs> Phil Schwagel trotted out yesterday trillion-dollar deficits. Go all Dirksen on us. Austin Goolsby, can we handle the pernicious tendency of repeat trillion-dollar deficits?
6: Uh, well, yes, we can handle it. And the thing that Swagel emphasized and is the right thing to emphasize is what's the scary part of this is not the repeat trillion-dollar deficits, in the sense that when we've had trillion-dollar deficits before, or comparable as a share of the economy, it's always been only two things cause that, big recessions or large wars. That's it. This is the first time ever that you're seeing deficits exploding like this at a time of boom. And that is overwhelmingly, the Congressional Budget Office data shows, overwhelmingly, that is because... The tax cut did not pay for itself. It yeah. lost literally hundreds of billions of dollars per year of revenue. And the CBO showed, here's what we were projecting the revenue was going to be, yeah. and here is the revenue coming okay. in hundreds of billions of dollars per year, less than that. We're going to get you and back. That is, a, that is a problem. Yes, we can handle it, but as I say, the problem of deficits is not that mm. They drive your interest rate up, and we have a fiscal crisis. The problem of deficits is that you have to pay back the money. And so in the f- future years, we're just going to be paying more and more of our yeah. budget in interest and have less and less yeah. for all of the priorities.
0: we got to get you back on Austin Gouldsby, brilliant here, thrilled to have Bill Dudley, Austin Gouldsby, back-to-back... This is an important interview. What we're going to do now is away from the business of of, uh, this terrible virus. We're going to talk of the medicine. She's out of Oberlin and out of the hugely prestigious University of Washington Combine in microbiology and virology. Jennifer Rohn joins us now from UCL uh, in London. She's done absolutely original work, among other things, on the feline virus scare of a number of years ago. Dr. Rohn, do you know the medicine of this virus this morning? Can you identify its virology, or does that need to wait for a few days or weeks?
7: You know what it does. We know that it very much like the SARS virus before us, it, it goes inside your lungs and basically just rips them out. It's a really, really harsh uh, attack on the lungs. We know that people can recover from this. Uh, people have recovered. All right. But... Um, Unfortunately, about 2 to 3% of people will die from this.
0: Within this and within that narrow percentage, which is still heartbreaking, is it the risk of the virus or the knock-on bacterium afterwards? Is it secondary illnesses that kill people, or is it actually this virus?
7: I don't think we know for sure, but I think the early indications are that it's actually directly caused by the virus. This would be the modus operandi of, of a number of viruses to go in and attack the lungs.
3: Dr. Rohn, this but It's early
7: days, so we haven't done all, a lot, you know, we still, the picture is emerging.
3: Dr. Rohn, this morning I was looking exactly at what you were saying, the 2 to 3% fatality, mortality rate so far that we have tracked. I'm wondering how accurate that is in terms of the diagnosed cases, especially in light of some of the news that a lot of people who might contract the virus have no symptoms whatsoever.
7: Well, the death rate, you know from what i understand the hospitals in china are overwhelmed there's been social media reports of corridors full of people some of them look like they're not alive we don't know how up-to-date the reporting is there might be a lag time in understanding the true death rate and and obviously if this virus is contagious when you have no symptoms that would cause more spread i think the jury is still out on that there are some people who who Have reported this but these these data have not been sort of carefully checked by the community so i'm not sure but on that point but it's the numbers that we have could be underestimated simply because there's just a backlog in getting people tested and getting getting the numbers up
2: what are you hearing about that then let's talk about it in a little bit more detail first of all the incubation period the the period between Exposure and when you first see signs of symptoms. As you mentioned, Jennifer, there is some debate as to whether you are contagious during the incubation period with this specific virus. Do we know how long the incubation period actually is?
7: Well, this has also been a moving target. So the initial estimation was the incubation period may have been as long as two weeks, but now we're seeing people estimating just from looking at patterns of spread that it might be closer to five days. That's a huge difference. Um, While you're if, and especially if it can spread while you're not showing symptoms. So that incubation period is crucial to know. Like if you've been wandering around for the last week with no symptoms and you're spreading the virus willy-nilly, that's a problem. Uh, so we need to get a handle on these numbers. And the only way we're going to do that is by careful contact tracing, uh, looking at who's touched who, who's been around who, and how long it takes for them to succumb to the illness.
3: Dr. Ron, this morning I was looking at the mortality rate for the seasonal flu, It was 0.1% in the United States during a typical season, and I'm wondering how much more uh, catastrophic would it be for medical professionals if a disease like this, like the coronavirus, were to spread the way that the seasonal flu does in the United States?
7: Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's, you've mentioned a good point, which is that flu is also very deadly, and people do tend to forget that. I think that flu is a very familiar illness. We know, we know about it. We have a vaccine. We have a really sort of a, almost an a assembly line approach to it. Every season, we, we, tra- we track and we monitor it, and we know, you know how it works. I think the danger here is that we don't know anything about this new virus. We, we only know a very, very tiny amount. We don't know how it ticks. We don't even know if it's seasonal. I mean, some people are hoping it is seasonal so that we'll get a little bit of a lull uh, in the summer to sort of get, get on top of the vaccine and, and the new uh, medications coming down the pipeline. But it's really a big unknown. And I think if it is, yeah, this is not an easy question to answer. But I think a coronavirus would have the potential to be as bad as flu if it mutates and becomes a worse virus, which can happen.
3: Dr. Jennifer Rohn, thank you so much for being with us to provide the true medical perspective.
2: is the stock to watch in early trading time. It's up by 1.6% in and around session lows, but still firmer and on course for all-time highs in and around the opening bell.
0: The media discussion will be fanboys versus the Apple gloom. There has been a more intelligent discussion on the sell side around nuance. Mr. Ives joins us now. He has been an Apple bull. He has provided intellectual leadership, on the path ever higher. Dan, congratulations. What was the nuance? What was the thing that reaffirmed Ivesian optimism?
8: Yeah, to me, it's really about the iPhone 11 product cycle. It's much stronger than anyone could have anticipated, especially in China. That's the fuel in the engine. And if you look at numbers and guidance, it was a masterpiece for Cook and Cupertino.
2: A blowout print, according to you, Dan. And your price target's 400. You're street high. I just wanted to though, reflect on what some of your peers are doing at the moment. Are you uncomfortable just how many of you are chasing with this, raising your price target morning after morning and still not keeping in touch with where the stock is, Dan? Yeah, it's a good
8: point. And I think that's one of the bull bear debates here it is this a hype cycle. And I think what you saw last night is that it's real. I mean, you look at the upgrade cycle, 350 million nines, 25 million phones in a window of upgrade opportunity, going into a transformational 5G cycle, I could tell you in 20 years of covering tech, I think it's one of the more transformational cycles I've seen and that's why I think Apple has a four in front of it a year from now.
2: But, Dan, you're making a big point here. You're emphasizing the hardware. And as a lot of people saw this multiple go through the roof, they were emphasizing the shift to services. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to help our audience understand the appropriate multiple to put on this company and whether you're valuing a super cycle on the hardware side or the shift to services. Which one is it, Dan?
8: Yeah, I think it's really some of the parts. I mean, if I go back three years ago, the services business, when it was $30 billion, wasn't getting a valuation. Today, that's gonna be a sixty billion dollar revenue stream. We think that's worth six hundred billion, the services piece. The actual hardware, the Rocket Gibraltar, the iPhone, one point two trillion. So on the sum of the parts what is it? We think that's worth. Um, You know, into the $400 range.
0: Okay, so it gets you out to $400, but you've got share, they bought back 24% of the stock over five years. Fold in share buybacks, dividend growth into some of the parts, and give me a number to pennies $426.32, $448.12. What is it?
8: Yeah, I mean, to me right here, I think bull case $450 in in terms of where I see this going.
3: What do you think they
8: should do? Yeah, where's it?
3: What do you think they should do with the $270 billion of cash they've got?
8: Well, I think they'll do an accelerated buyback again in the next six months. And then I do believe they're going to carve out about $10 billion for M&A. And it's going to be continued innovation. But they're going to be cash neutral. And that's why right now Apple has more cash in some countries. They're going to continue to do that and give it to shareholders, which is why even though it's a debate, that, that, that's going to continue to drive stock higher.
0: Excuse me, we're having a surveillance moment here. Dan Ives is killing me with the optimism. It's time to get out the HP-12C. Lisa, <laughs> continue.
3: <laughs> I will say, though, you say M&A. Are we talking about buying something like Netflix, or are we talking about small suppliers and small services, uh, coordinators that might be potential opportunities for diversification down the line?
8: Yeah, I think from a content perspective, I look at the three biggest um, candidates as Lionsgate MGM or an A twenty four in terms of from a studio perspective for a content. And I think that's that's the missing piece right now and from a content on the streaming side. And to Tom's point, you know, if I look at if I look at the services piece right now, I think that's gonna be the next step because if they're successful there, that adds another fifteen dollars per share based on our math.
2: Dan, you could drive a truck through the estimate range for the next quarter, $63 billion sure. to 67000000000 billion. We're into the unknown here in China, aren't we, Dan? And I just wonder what clarity you got from the call yesterday.
8: Yeah, I mean, obviously coronavirus, especially given China, not just demand, but from a manufacturing perspective, extremely important for Apple. I think they did a good job hand-holding investors. It's a wider range, just like you talked about, but we've quantified about 3% of units worst case could shift from march to june
2: this is just pushing so demand out Dan, that, just, just to be clear just pushing demand out to the next quarter it's a pure
8: timing pushing demand out i don't view any manufacturing restriction in terms of foxconn where we are right now if obviously this continues to get worse and we go into march then it becomes an issue
0: okay we're got to get the camera out here Lisa's doing it i've just done the hp12c we got to help young ives here with the help, if you extrapolate $2 trillion, Dan, write this down, $462.31 per share, $461.31 per share. That's with no further share buyback, Dan. I mean, they're going to get to $2 trillion in 24 months, given your vector, right?
8: I mean, that's why right now, I mean, as much as from a betting perspective, I look at it like $2 trillion. Going into 2021, to me, based on the trajectory, it's as confident as I feel as Mahomes on Sunday.
2: Right. even i got that joke you got that joke, <laughs> got that joke. <laughs> oh my god well, i will
3: say you know there there is a question though here what is the potential for disruption and, and what's sort of the competitive pressure at this point for uh apple to keep innovating in order to keep this Well oh, there
0: you go gloomy again
3: i'm not gloomy i'm i'm looking at the potential uh pitfalls the, worries, the fear help me out here dan yeah
0: yeah, I
8: think, I think the biggest thing that they proved, not just last time, but over the last year, when you look at AirPods, AirPods can be 5% of revenue this year. 85 to 90 million units they're going to sell. So from an They're killing Tom, by the it way. Comes, killing it. Well, well, and, it and, and, and it comes down to when you look at AirPods, that's, that's really been a huge part of the innovation. They're going to have to continue to innovate. But ultimately, right now, for the next 12 to 18 months, it's Rocket Gibraltar iPhone services that's how you get to the tom Keene 462 price
0: target oh listen oh, i'm gonna get in trouble
8: it's the tom Keene price target <laughs> tom's gone from a triple leverage no, cash no, fund but, but, to but, a two no, trillion dollar price target no but real realistically right now if you look at the setup right here yeah. i could tell you if i looked at apple the last decade I've never been more bullish in terms of the setup and where I see yeah. it
0: going. Full disclosure, and Emily house just emails in. Emily and I sat out in Tuna once they flew us out, uh, and we are under the uh, platinum record of uh, Gwen Stefani, of No Doubt, trying to explain the podcast business, John. And you and I, we're talking our book, folks. John and I have been hugely affected by the success of these podcasts. At we're
2: Apple. almost, almost a million downloads every single month. We'll stop talking our book we got to jump there. Lisa's
0: kids started tuning in. And Let's
2: talk out. about some options out mm-hmm. there, Dan Ives. Some people have mentioned in the last 24 hours that I can get Facebook at a lower multiple, spinning off much higher top-line growth. Why do I want to own Apple at 24 times earning? Dan, you don't just cover Apple. Look at the other tech firms that you mm-hmm. cover at the moment. Why would Apple be top of the pile, top pick?
8: Well, look, I mean, Facebook, we're, we're still extremely bullish on it as well. But, but, but and, and what I continue to believe, FANG names have another 25% higher this year. And I, I think you have to sort of diversify in terms of that Facebook bet as well as Amazon. But to me, in terms of a transformational cycle, you yeah. look where Apple is today, you look where what happened last night, that really now gave credence to what I believe is going to be. A historical bull cycle for Apple. They're only right. halfway
0: through. Uh, very good, Dan. I congratulations on your call. Greatly appreciated. He is with uh, Wedbush. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.